Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wildcard Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. Welcome to Industry Focus. Today is Tuesday, November 9th, and I'm your consumer goods host, Emily Flippin. Today, I am joined by Motley Fool Senior Analyst Asit Sharma, and we're going to be talking about Lifetime Fitness. It's an old company headed back to public markets after more than six years of being private. Asit, thank you so much for joining. Emily, thank you for having me. It feels like I've waited a lifetime to talk about this company. It is an interesting business. And, you know, I, I grew up in Texas where there were a decent number of lifetime fitnesses, but I was surprised when I moved away for college and subsequent jobs just how as a sparse lifetime fitness locations are. So I'm willing to take a bet that there are a lot of people listening who maybe have no idea how a lifetime gym, which they do operate a, a chain of fitness centers, how a lifetime gym is different than an existing gym, whereas other listeners are probably saying, oh man, I love lifetime. I've been a, a member for years, uh, but whichever way it falls, it should be an interesting conversation. Yeah, I think I'm in the half of folks who know about lifetime fitness, but maybe there's a third group there who sort of understand it because there's one near them, but aren't really members. It's been years since I was a, mem- a member of any gym. The last one I was a member of kicked me out unceremoniously. But that's another story. <laughs> well, I feel like I'll that's need to joke, hear that actually. story one day. The, okay. <laughs> the, the unceremoniousness is is uh, not understanding how to to get fit. I unceremoniously re- re- removed myself from my own subscription. But yeah, I wanted to say yeah, before we, we leap in here, there's a lifetime fitness, Emily, um, in my town. So I live in the northern part of Raleigh, North Carolina, and it's huge. And this is a freestanding building on several acres. It's got a really big pool with lots of amazing looking slides for young kids it looks like something you could get lost inside of just from the road. I've never been in it. Honestly, if for listeners who aren't familiar, you can almost imagine them like a little resort. So uh, my boyfriend actually gets up every morning at five o'clock and says he goes, you know, drives 30 minutes out of his way to go to Lifetime Fitness. And he, he says he's working out, but I'm convinced he's just going to, to go and sit in the eucalyptus steam room or otherwise just kind of have this almost resort-like experience before heading out for work. Uh, but With the resort also comes a pretty hefty price tag. So one of the key differences between a lifetime fitness center and a fitness center like, uh, especially like Planet Fitness, but even expanding further, the the LA fitnesses of the world is um, just how expensive that membership is, right? They have a wide range of offerings. Most locations have pools, um, daycares for children, group sessions, all included in the membership price, but it, it comes at a price tag, doesn't it? It it does. And that price tag tells on the operating model of the company if you're a potential investor. So, Emily, what about this story, though? So, Lifetime is not actually new to the public markets? 
It's not. It, this is an interesting story. So from January 2004 to June 2015, uh, Lifetime was actually a public company. They went private in June 2015. And interestingly enough, is I kind of extrapolate how I imagine these businesses that are taken private, and I assume that they've been underperforming. But over the course of its life, uh, over a decade as a public company, they actually returned over 240% versus the S&P 500's 85%. So it was not a bad stock, although it did obviously depend on when you purchased, uh, but had a surprisingly strong history. But it did have that complicated departure to turn into a private business. Um, part of the reason why Lifetime did go private through a leveraged buyout was because it was experiencing a lot of pressure from new fitness alternatives, so things like SoulCycle and CrossFit, as well as one of its major shareholders, which was really pressuring the business to convert into a REIT to really improve its tax bill because Lifetime Fitness owned the land of all the locations of which it was built. And as you mentioned, these are giant parcels of land. Um, it does make it a fun analysis, though, because we can go back to their filings, right, back in 2015, 2014, and look at how the business was before, obviously, pre-pandemic, but also heading into to going public again. How has the business changed over the past six or seven years? Yeah, I found it interesting that one of the reasons they went private was because of this emerging um, industry and fitness, which now is more connected fitness. In some ways, Lifetime Fitness participates in this. We'll talk about that as we go along. But this is a model that's worked for a lot of companies. I mean, I can think of uh, Dell Computer, which went private uh, years ago to become better without having to answer to shareholders once pressure intensified in its main business lines. At that point, it was mostly a PC maker and into the server business. I think of Levi's Jeans, which went private and really uh, tightened down their business model and came public again. So just coming back to the public markets doesn't necessarily mean that a company is desperate. Oftentimes, with the help of private equity and venture capital investors, a company's become stronger. We're going to test this proposition as we go on. Now, before they went private, they operated 113 gyms across the US and Canada, showed consistent gap profits, so book profits or profits according to generally accepted accounting principles. But you note, Emily, they had a hard time generating any real free cash flow because at that point in time, it was a very capital intensive business. They had to maintain their existing locations and they were always building new ones. I want to return to this before we exit this half hour, uh, because I think this is a really interesting point you've picked up on uh, in terms of that capital intensive business model, what it looks like today versus then. It's a lot to unpack there, but to look at how the business is operating in 2021, um, obviously some of these numbers are a little bit funky because 2020 was certainly an abnormal year, but they have grown to more than 150 fitness centers, again, across the US and Canada. They cater to more than 1.4 million active members. So that's the total number of people that could visit their gym. Within that is around 767,000 active memberships. So people actually paying the bill there. And 
The thing that stood out to me was that this was actually less than the number of memberships they had back at the end of 2014. They had over 800,000 memberships before they went private um, and the same number of active members around 1.4 million. And my first thought was, okay, well, a lot of this is probably because of canceled memberships due to 2020, right? Uh, A lot of people probably fell out of their gym habits, didn't want to go during the pandemic, and even now may not feel comfortable reinstating those memberships. But even going back to the numbers they reported for 2019, total memberships is only, I would say, mildly better. They had about 100,000 more members than they do today at 854,000 members. This is all to say, it's not like this business has suddenly become a ton more attractive as they've built out more centers. Membership has remained steady, but not skyrocketing. Yeah. And even so, that number, funnily enough, didn't bother me so much. This is a founder-led business, although not with the most attractive ownership characteristics, which we're going to talk about in a moment when we talk about the uh, investment composition of shareholders. But uh, the CEO has who founded this company, I think in 1992, and maybe a precursor a year or two before that. But uh, his name is Baram Akradi, and I believe I pronounced that right. Yeah, I think Baram Akradi. He's run this company for 30 years, so if you can hit that equilibrium number of active memberships and have a persuasive plan to maybe grab more revenue per member um, or introduce enough ancillary services, if your model is a resort, which Emily, you know, you said that about your boyfriend, but they actually use this terminology in in their prospectus. These are resort-like gyms. Uh, you, you probably can optimize from there. So that number doesn't scare me enough. Um, you know, they're going to a primarily leased model in their business. Today, 60% of these centers are leased, as opposed to the 2015 era when they own most of their buildings. And they're targeting affluent areas. 70% of members are homeowners with median household incomes of 112,000 bucks. And when you look at the cohorts that have joined after 2015, that number jumps to 127,000 in median income. Uh, We mentioned how big these footprints are of the gyms. Just something to bear in mind, there is nothing that says in uh, any kind of physical environment, you have to have one model. Uh, It's sort of a bet the business when you stick to one model. I really like what Best Buy has done. Now, that's a completely different business. It's in the retail sector, but also dealing with multiple buildings owned, leased. They've been very good at experimenting with uh, different size formats. I think of Dunkin' Donuts in the food sector. Um, It seems to make sense to me that you would prototype different sizes of buildings, but maybe you can't deliver that resort-like experience in less than about 30,000 square feet. Um, but that's not all that you get when you when you join up with Lifetime, known for the gyms, but they have been, as we sort of mentioned before, investing in digital offerings to have, I think, viable alternatives to uh, people who want the connected fitness aspect of their lives. So they have an app, it provides fitness concept, but they also offer an Apple Fitness Plus subscription if you subscribe to their gym. 
I have to get your take on this initiative because I, I want to say this surprised me when I was reading through their their filings, but it didn't because as I mentioned, my, my boyfriend is a member. So we got emails about these initiatives. I knew about these initiatives prior to reading any of the financial statements of Lifetime. And I'll tell you what, as just a consumer, it got me scratching my head. I genuinely cannot tell if I think this idea is terrible or revolutionary. <laughs> If this is WeWork or or Amazon, but one of the things that they're looking to do, and this is on a very small scale right now, they're still heavily focused on gyms, but they're also creating what they call this fitness community by adding additional offerings inside their gym locations, all part of this giant, massive building, things like co-working spaces and apartments. They call it lifetime work and lifetime living. They already have seven lifetime work locations operating and one lifetime living operation uh, operating. And I tell you what, as a user, as somebody who works from home with a partner who goes to Lifetime, I can't help but think it would be so convenient to live in a place, go downstairs, go to my co-working space, get some work done for the fool, uh, while also managing to, to sneak that gym in. But at the same time, I mean, this is crazy. This sounds like we work to me. <laughs> Uh, so those of you who are watching live can see this, but if you're listening on the podcast, you can't see me trying to stifle my laughter because <laughs> Emily, I just, just see it the total opposite way. Now, before COVID, I think, yes, this might've been something that, um, would have been persuasive for tons of people. And it still is, look, to, to give some credence to, to what you're saying, it still is maybe an attractive idea for those of us who like to be fit to have you know work that often can extend into different hours it seems really convenient and nice but on the other hand after covid it feels like the the impetus that is driving many people is is tr to travel and get out of the world because now we're going to be in this hybrid environment where many of us will be at home all day continuing to work remote some businesses have changed permanently and have gone completely remote some are hybrid where you're going to be going in a few days a week so i think a concept like this in my opinion might become less attractive uh, because we already have that element of co-working it's in our own homes. The, the um, idea now is one of socializations. And maybe you know a gym like this has more social aspect than your average Planet Fitness. And, and that's why it might seem more attractive. But I, I'm going to just say for me, uh-uh. I, 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 I would like <laughs> to work out. I would like maybe to explore co-working spaces again, but not the two together. I don't know why. Just give me the sauna. <laughs> Or give me the co-working space, but not both on the same. <laughs> I, I'm not sure if this actually changes anything. If you're looking at Lifetime as an investment, um, I'm not sure this would be the make or break factor. But I'll tell you what, just as a consumer, I can't wait for this business to start reporting quarterly earnings because I, I want to hear the updates about whether or not these these value propositions are really being felt by consumers. Um, I did do some poking around and I believe their location, they have one op operating in Florida for the, the living or the process of building it out. And it's expensive, it's premium. They are definitely going up market with all of their offerings. So maybe not the type of solution that everybody will use, but for the people who do feel connected to that fitness community, then man, maybe this just really appeals to them. I do have to, to ask, though, because I, I'm certain, certain that lots of people are thinking this, which is, what's the narrative around fitness right now? Because we saw Peloton come out with a pretty dismal quarter last week. Um, 
guidance was pulled back, um, active accounts kind of pulled back from where they expected to be, and management cited the fact that they just simply didn't uh, project the, I guess, reopening that we're experiencing right now. But at the same time, when I look at the membership numbers for Lifetime, they're not nearly to where they were pre-pandemic. They've rebounded quite a bit, but they're still down year over year. So where are the consumers going to go over the next year? I'm not sure I have the answer to that. It's almost kind of this this question that I think investors should be asking themselves before buying any of these businesses. But I I kind of feel like you have to be a believer in the, the model to get behind this stock today. I agree, Emily. And I think the fitness industry did not anticipate a consumer at the crossroads. So every company that I looked at in this industry, whether they were gym-focused or connected fitness-focused, had a bet about the effect of the end of the pandemic on their business. Peloton, yes, you know we um, pulled through a lot of sales during COVID, but we think that uh, consumers are going to continue to be active on our platform because our product is so great. There's a social aspect for the gyms. Hey, they're going to come back in droves uh, as soon as COVID is over, and we're going to see memberships spike again. But really, the typical consumer, I think, is at a crossroads in that we are enjoying outdoor experiences. We aren't cycling as much as we were to take the stress of COVID off of our bodies. <laughs> We've developed some good habits. Hey, speak for yourself. <laughs> well, we in the royal we. <laughs> Not to include you, Emily. I know you're very active on that Nautilus. And I had a side question because I'm looking at bikes. We'll do that offline uh, about your particular model. But I think for many people, this is something that is a decision that can be put off. Do I sort of get back on my old track of um, using the Peloton all the time? Do I join up at the gym? Consumers just taking their time. And this is affecting both types of business models. I'm just waiting, you know, if, if we see Lifetime Fitness with their own connected fitness app and offering classes online, I'm just waiting now for Peloton to have a Peloton branded gym, just as an experiment, you know, they're, they're, they'll present it that way, <laughs> get a toe in the water, because that, that model still has not settled. And here we are, um, COVID is still with us, although increasingly getting in the back or rearview mirror. <laughs> You know, I really would like to see from this business. I'm so happy you mentioned that that because you know, this is a business that has an agreement with Apple Fitness. When you're a subscriber to a Lifetime Fitness gym, you get Apple Fitness for free if you're if you're an Apple user. And that's a great partnership. When you look at Planet Fitness, they have a partnership with iFit to to make content for the iFit platform. I would love to see a partnership between Lifetime and Peloton where, you know, the numerous classes that Lifetime offers, a lot of them spin classes, use Peloton machines, right? They pay Peloton to have that experience and then Lifetime can go to that, again, very premium market and say, look, we have the most premium offerings. We have the Peloton bikes. We have the Peloton treadmills, whatever those experiences may be. They're, they're not there yet. That's just me speculating. But I would like to see something like that. That'd be fun. That would be a margin, a creative relationship for both companies if they did that. And and let's talk about those margins because Lifetime needs a little bit of, of margin improvement here. You mentioned prior that when this was a public company in the past, Lifetime never really generated a ton of cash. They always seem to be a little bit cash strapped. And Lifetime says, hey, look, we're not we're not as asset intensive now because we're not buying the real estate, we're leasing the real estate. 
But cash flow is still something that's hard to come by for this business. Um, Pre-pandemic, they did generate uh, nearly $2 billion in revenue, but that was only with $30 million in net income. So extremely low margin. Obviously, 2020 was a different story, but the cash generation potential for this business just feels very strapped with how it's operating today, especially when you consider all of the capital expenditures that go into initiatives like lifetime work and lifetime live. Yeah, you know, this description that the company uses of being an asset light business now, it's not deceptive, but it's a it's subjective matter of opinion. You know, I, I would challenge that in saying that when you build uh, such big buildings, someone has to bear the cost of that. And, and the way the company is doing that is primarily through sale leaseback transactions. So they bear the cost of building these buildings and they sell them to a, a, an owner and they become the lessor. So in exchange for owning that building and um, having to come up with the maintenance cash flow, you you exchange that for operating lease payments, and that's a cash drain. And then also on the book side or the gap side of your business, you've got still a pretty big depreciation and amortization component. Uh, presumably, it's interesting, Emily, I did not see a property plant and equipment note in the prospectus almost as if it wasn't material, although there's two and a half billion bucks of net fixed assets on the balance sheet. But presumably, there is a segment of leasehold improvements that uh, Lifetime Fitness is putting on its own books in these buildings, even though they are now the lessor. So, there's some depreciation going on there. Um, and then they also have uh, these right of use assets on their books. So, that's you know basically when you take an operating lease for a building over many years, oftentimes you have to put an asset on the books to represent your right to use that asset. And you're amortizing that every uh, quarter. So, on the book side of things, they're going to show losses. But then on the cash flow side of things, it's not like this so-called asset light model absolves them of having to Pay, make rental payments <laughs> month in and month out <laughs> on these 30,000 square foot buildings. And I churned some cash numbers last night. I don't see you know, how they really scale that, except um, maybe for, or, or with a, a mechanism which you mentioned um, in our notes, which is that average revenue uh, per member. And so, um, I believe, so I'm just reading from, from what you were pointing out last night, between 20,000 and 2015 and 2019, we grew our average revenue per membership from $1,883 to $2,172. Um, now that fell off during 2020, but they're saying they are seeing a strong rebound this year um, with $984 in average revenue per membership in this during the six months ended June 30th of 2021. So over the long run, management said in its prospectus, that look, this is how we intend to improve margins. We're going to offer more services. We're going to build more buildings in even more affluent areas, and we'll have pricing power that way. But I think that's a long road, and I don't really see it in the numbers panning out. And Emily, they've got some debt on their books too, don't they? They do, and that makes the the whole question of cash generation, especially cash that would then accrete to shareholders, just that much more challenging. I mentioned earlier that this was a business that was brought private through a leveraged buyout. 
prior to this buyout, they still had about a billion dollars in debt. Um, never really seemed to have more than 10 or 15 million in cash, but a ton of debt. That increased, obviously, as part of this buyout strategy. Um, right now, again, before going public, they have around $2.4 billion of long-term debt. They only raised around $700 million in their IPO. They did price the low end of their expected range. Um, expecting to use a, a substantial portion of that to pay down some of their debt. But even if we take that de debt down by, you know, a half billion or so, we're still talking about, you know, nearly $2 billion in long-term debt for this business, which is pretty lofty. Again, it eats in, you know, the interest on that eats into the cash that this business generates, which is already a very low margin business. Yeah. The, the last point that I want to put on that debt picture is that, um, the owner, uh, so CEO Baram Akradi, I call him, he's, he's the founder, still CEO. Um, he has 6% of this company still, and which is amazing to me. After 30 years, multiple rounds of investments, mm -hmm. a second go to the public markets, he still managed to hang on to 6% <laughs> of, of his shares. Um, good, good for him. But you know, there are three private equity firms, uh, presumably, I should have double-checked this in the, the prior year statements, the ones who took the company private, it's Leonard Green Partners, LGP, a company called TPG Capital, and LNK Partners, who collectively own about 59% of the outstanding shares. They have voting control, and they've got the right between them to nominate seven of the company's 13 directors on its board. Private equity firms are notorious financial buyers and financial operators. So there's no real incentive or mechanism for the founder to say, look, I'm going to do whatever it it takes to pay down this debt. I'm going to plan things from for the very long term and execute on this vision to increase margins and cash flow. He's stacked up against uh, very financial-minded people who may find it just okay to run the company with this consistent high interest expense on the books. You know, as long as they see the stock price marginally increasing, there are a lot of opportunities for private equity owners who have a big chunk of a public company to extract value along the way. They can do that in lending company themselves to, to the public company. Um, so many ways. Uh, and there are also some preferred share. Uh, it's basically a tranche of mezzanine equity on the books, which we don't have time to get into today. <laughs> but this gives you just one example of how um, many ways private equity firms have to finance ongoing operations, even when 40-odd percent of a company uh, or, or, or less than that actually is public. So I feel very skeptical about the founder's ability to do anything meaningful to even increase cash flow over the next several years. Well, I don't know about you, but personally, I'm, I'm going to send the sidelines here uh, to sum it up. The first half of 21 has still been challenged for this business, even though memberships have rebounded, uh, revenue has rebounded a bit. They're still posting some massive losses. This is still very capital intensive, as much as they want to say it's not, a very capital intensive business uh, that has very low margins. As, as a consumer, I... You know, I'm intrigued by all these strategies. If I was a parent, I would certainly be taking advantage, paying that extra money to get the daycare while I went to the gym. All those things to me stand out as great consumer experiences, but maybe don't translate into the best investment today. Well, at the least, Emily, maybe at some point next year, we'll see you uh, broadcasting on Industry Focus from inside <laughs> your apartment that's located beside your co-working space that's all housed in one of their 
big fitness centers. <laughs> I may be the only person out there who thinks that, but to me, that would be living the dream. <laughs> well, Austin, thank you so much as always for joining. Thank you very much, Emily. This was a lot of fun. Listeners, that does it for this episode of Industry Focus. If you have any questions or just want to reach out to say hey, shoot us an email at industryfocusatfool.com or tweet, it at, tweet at us at MF Industry Focus. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against any stocks mentioned, so don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Tim Sparks for his work behind the screen today. For Asit Sharma, I'm Emily Flippin. Thanks for listening and Fool on! Fool on!